Okay, on the, at about 11 p.m. on September 17, 1860, <clears throat> the sidewheel steamer Lady Elgin set out from a port in Chicago with about 400 people on board. She was on the return way to Milwaukee. The passengers on board had taken advantage of a dollar excursion fare for a round trip from Milwaukee to Chicago. They had come down earlier in the day, spent the day in Chicago, and they were on the way back. The weather was a little iffy, apparently around the Great Lakes area. It can be iffy during that time of year. And a storm was brewing, but the captain wasn't too worried about it. He, the Lady Elgin was a good ship, and he wasn't worried that it was going to come to any harm. Well, about 2.30 in the morning, they were steaming north, and they were in the face of some pretty heavy winds. When they collided with a schooner, the schooner Augusta, which was going southward towards Chicago with a load of, load of lumber. And the Lady Elgin was a bigger ship than the Augusta, and they weren't aware of the damage that she had suffered. So the crew of the Lady Elgin just waved the Augusta off. They said they didn't need any help. Just keep going. And the Augusta sailed on to Chicago. About 20 minutes later, the boiler and the engine of the Lady Elgin fell through the hull which had been severely damaged in the wreck. And of course, the ship started to break up and threw everybody into the water. The captain and the crew, they were able to lash together a larger raft from sections of the top deck, and they got about 50 people on board. So there's 50 people on this larger raft, and there's people just clinging to bits and pieces of the wreckage, and they all started floating southward back towards Chicago. They did this for three, three and a half hours, so it's starting to get light by this time, and this little flotilla of people is slowly moving back towards Chicago. Well, people on the shore started to notice that because it was starting to get light, so of course they mounted rescue parties, and one of those rescue parties was comprised of students from Northwestern University, which is in Evanston, Illinois, and one of those students was named Edward Spencer. Edward Spencer was a pretty good swimmer, and so what he did is he tied a rope around his waist, and he would swim out to somebody. When he got there, he would latch onto him, latch onto them, and his classmates would pull him back in via the rope. Edward Spencer did this for six hours. Okay, and he is credited with rescuing 17 of the 98 people that survived that night. Eventually, Spencer was cut up and bruised from the rocks, and he was just physically exhausted. He just could not go into the water any longer, and he passed out. He just passed out on the shore, woke up a couple of days later in his room in Evanston. So a couple of weeks after, he, rec he recovered, and he tried to go back to school, but he just was not able to. He was always haunted by the people that he couldn't save. He said he to the... To his dying day, he remembered their faces and their cries. And so the emotional and the physical toll, just he was unable to go back to school. And he actually spent most of the rest of his life in a wheelchair. Well, a couple of decades later, after this event, R.A. Torrey, I'm sure you all know who he is, he was an influential evangelical of the day. And he was giving a sermon, and as he was giving this sermon, he's telling the story of the Lady Elgin. 
just kind of like I was doing right now. And somebody in the congregation raised their hand and said, Dr. Tory, Edward Spencer is actually here today. He's in the congregation. <clears throat> so Dr. Tory invited him to come up on stage because he was going to interview him about the events of that night. So by this time, Edward Spencer is a pretty old man, and so he kind of hobbles up onto the stage. He gets there, and Dr. Tory asks him, he says, if there, is there anything in particular about that time, that night, that stood out to you? And you would think, yeah, there's lots of things, right? The, the waves, the, the adrenaline, all this stuff. This is what Edward Spencer said. He said, only this, sir, of the 17 people I saved, not one of them ever thanked me. Not one of them thanked him. Now, it's understandable that they wouldn't have thanked him that day. You're in shock. Maybe you're not even conscious. But in the decades since, nobody tracked him down to thank him. His name was all over the newspaper. They could have gone to Northwestern University and asked, is there an Edward Spencer? Not one person for the rest of his life tracked him down to thank him. That level of ingratitude, it seems shocking, doesn't it? I can see your faces. You're, so, you're all shocked. Um, it might even make you a little angry that that would happen. Edward Spencer risked his life to save 17 people, and not one of them ever said thanks. But before we pass judgment too quickly, we should ask ourselves, how often do we in this room who have been saved from death and given eternal life how often do we fail to thank the one who rescued us? You know, I aspire to be someone whose life is characterized by thankfulness. I really do. But too often I find that I'm just like the people that Edward Spencer rescued. I too often forget to say thanks. I too often forget to be thankful. So when I stand up here, and I've said this before, that I am teaching as much for my edification, maybe more, than I hopefully am for yours. So what characterizes, what distinguishes biblical thanksgiving, thanksgiving in the biblical sense from your garden variety thankfulness? Because I know lots of people who don't profess Christ who are thankful people. So what is it that's different about thanksgiving in the biblical sense? Marvin Olasky, he is the editor-in-chief of World Magazine, which, by the way, is an excellent magazine. I don't know if some of you get it or not, but if you're looking for news from a Christian perspective, it's, it's really good. They do a great job. But anyway, Marvin Olasky was talking, and he related the story of a conversation he had with a prominent author who also happened to be an atheist. And this author had just been on a vacation to a tropical beach with his family, and the author is telling Olasky you know, I was in the water, and the water's warm, and I'm feeling the gentle motion of the waves, and I'm looking at the blue sky and the puffy clouds and the white sand, and, and I was just overcome with this sense of gratitude and thankfulness. And Olasky, who is a Christian, asked him, well, who, who were you thanking? Who were you thankful to? Not missing an opportunity, right, to, to get the gospel in there. Olasky said, you know, the people that bought your books, they gave you the money which enabled you to go on the vacation, but they didn't do any, they didn't create the ocean. 
or the waves or the, the clouds. Neither did your publisher or your publicist or your literary agent. None of those people had anything to do really with the thing that you were most thankful for, which was creation. I don't think the guy ever became a Christian. Olasky didn't say he did or anything. But the point he was making is that when we give thanks, there's always an object to our thanks. There's always an object that we're giving thanks to or for. And what distinguishes biblical thanksgiving is that object is always God or should always be God. God is the only proper object of our thanks and our gratitude. And since he is, one of the ways that we cultivate an attitude of thanksgiving is that we can meditate on who God is. You know, cover to cover, the Bible is the story of God. You can't open it, you can't look at a sentence or read a paragraph without seeing God. But we just spent five weeks in the psalm, and when I taught on the psalms, I said this, and I think the other elders did too, is that I think the psalms are uniquely positioned or uniquely given for us to be able to meditate on God and on his attributes because they give us a poetic language. As Mark said, they give us a language that stirs up our hearts and stirs up our emotions for God. This is what David says in Psalm 95. It says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Yeah, amen. David looked at God. He said, God is the rock of my salvation. When I am, you know that old hymn, Hidden in the, what is it? Hidden in the Cleft of the Rock? I, I'm going to mangle that, sorry. But when God is the rock of your salvation, you cannot be moved from that. Unless the rock can be moved, you cannot be moved from that. God is a great God. He is king above all other gods. There are no other gods than our God. David looked at God, saw him as he was, and the only possible response for David was thanksgiving. And when we look at God, whether it's in the Psalms, or you go out and you look at the the night sky, or you look at the big harvest moons that we've had lately, or you look at the beautiful sunset, When we look at God, when we consider his creation, when we're like the the author who looks at the waves, maybe you've been on a tropical beach location lately, we should, our response should be the same as David's. It should be thanksgiving. Well, maybe thinking about God doesn't get your thanksgiving motor running. But if it doesn't, then consider what God has done for you. And maybe that will. You know, over and over in the Old Testament, God tells Israel to remember. Remember. Remember how I saved you as a people. You were the least of all peoples, and I drew you out to be a people from my own possession. Remember how I rescued you out of the nation, out of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt, excuse me. How I rescued you out of Egypt, how I destroyed the Egyptians, how I displaced the Canaanite nations and settled you in the promised land. Remember, 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 remember. Large portions of the Old Testament are about remembering. Why is that? Because God's got this huge ego and he always wants people to be thinking about him? No, it's not because God 
has nothing to do with God needing his ego stroked or God needing something from us that we give in remembrance. The emphasis on remembrance is for our benefit, not for God's. Because a heart that is oriented toward God in thankfulness is much less likely to lead you astray than a heart that is not, but a heart that is filled with ingratitude. Mark taught on Psalm 103, and he titled his message, Remember and Rejoice, because that's the theme of the psalm. And it's remember what God has done for you. This is what David says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. David's going to go on and talk about how God has steadfast love, how he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, how he's good to us. All of those are very excellent reasons to thank God, to be thankful to God. For the believer, as I said earlier, we have been saved from death and given eternal life. That alone, whether God does anything else in our lives or not, that alone is reason to always be thankful to God. Unfortunately, we have a residual sin nature, and so giving thanks or being characterized by thanksgiving is a choice, and it's a choice that we often have to make every day, sometimes every minute in my case. We have to choose to be thankful. I'm going to give us a couple of reasons why I think we should make that choice. One is that when we practice thankfulness, when we're characterized by thankfulness, we are imitating Christ. And we're reflecting his heart. So you, In the Gospels, you see Jesus giving thanks in all kinds of situations. He gave thanks for food and bread when he fed the 5,000, when he fed the 4,000. When he sat down to eat with his disciples, he always gave thanks. At the Last Supper, he gave thanks for the meal. He gave thanks for his disciples. He gave thanks that instead of revealing the gospel to the wise, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that he had revealed the gospel to the weak, like his fisher, his fishermen followers. He gave thanks that God always heard him. That bottom reference there is when he resurrected Lazarus. He said, Father, I thank you that you hear me. You always hear me. He gave thanks. It was characteristic of Jesus' life to give thanks in all situations and all circumstances. And when that's our characterization of our life, we're imitating our Savior. And that should be the goal, right? The goal of sanctification, the goal of discipleship is to be more and more like our Savior. And one of the indispensable ways that we do that is we develop thankfulness in our lives and develop habits of thankfulness. Another reason is being thankful brings peace. Guys, we live in such an anxious and contentious time. In the West, we are the, most, we are the most prosperous, the most technologically advanced, 
the safest society that has ever been on the face of the earth in all of recorded history, bar none. We have a standard of living that is unparalleled in all of recorded history. And we are the most stressed out and angry people. If you read things, we suffer depression and anxiety-related illnesses at near epidemic proportions. It is astounding the number of people that are just completely stressed out, upset, angry all the time. It's just their default mode. And that takes a toll. It takes a toll on your physical health. Life expectancy in the United States is declining, and it's in large part because people are addicted to opioids. They're committing suicide, which are all stress and anxiety-related causes. Our social fabric is fraying. You can't have a conversation with anybody without it causing an argument. And we are losing the ability, because we're so stressed out and anxious about everything, we're losing the ability to distinguish between, between truth and falsehood. Right? We can't even tell what's true and what's not true anymore. And the church is not much different. The church is not much different than the culture. Every time we hear of another high-profile defection from the faith or every time there's increasing pressure from a, from a secular and hostile culture, we wring our hands as Christians. And, and the cause of that anxiety, it causes us to react in ways that are detrimental to our witness, that are detrimental to the gospel. Thanksgiving is the, ang- is the antidote to all that anxiety. This is what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer with thanksgiving results in peace. And not because this is some magic incantation. This isn't something you say five times, turn around twice, and all of a sudden you have peace. This isn't it. What happens is when we come to God in prayer with thanksgiving, We're acknowledging our dependence and reliance on God. We're saying that whatever is going on, whatever this situation is, I don't understand it. I may not like it. Whatever it is, God, I trust you. I understand that you and you alone are capable of handling whatever is going on in my life. I understand what the scripture says, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I understand that you are for me and not against me. That we are completely trusting ourselves to God. And when you do that, you change the focus of whatever's going on around you and you change the focus to God. And that can't help but bring peace. The other reason to give, to cultivate thankfulness in our life, and probably the most important, I could have just said this and not said anything else is it's God's will for our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. 
It says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God means for us to give thanks in any and every circumstance. God means for us to be dependent on him and for us to be thankful in whatever is going on in our lives. And listen, I understand there are people in here going through lots of hard things. But in every one of those circumstances, we're to give thanks. And it's not just that we give thanks in all circumstance. There is a type of thankfulness that we're supposed to practice. This is Paul in Colossians, which is the book we're studying in Sunday school. Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The word translated abounding there is used of a river that has overflowed its banks as a result of a flood. So we are supposed to be people whose thanksgiving is abounding. It's supposed to be uncontained by any borders. It's supposed to flow out uh, over us. I said this before. So on good days, I have a glass on the table. On my best days, there's something in that glass. My wife, on the other hand, does exactly what this verse talks about. So not only does my wife have a glass, her glass spills out onto the table and onto the floor and out the door. And I'm going to confess here, sometimes that just irritates me to no end. <laughs> Confession is good for the soul, right? So sometimes she'll say, oh, but we can be thankful for this. And I'm like, yes, honey, we can <laughs> be thankful for that. Thank you, dear. My helpmate. Um, but that's the kind of thankfulness we're supposed to have. It should be abounding. It should be overflowing. It should be something that people can see. We should be characterized by that type of thanksgiving. Wouldn't it be great if when we were saved and we got our new nature, that Thanksgiving just came hardwired in, right? So it was automatic. We didn't have to think about it. It was just God flips a switch and we're always thankful and we're always happy and we're, we're always giving thanks. Well, yeah, it just doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way because we're still sinful creatures. We still have that residual sin nature that we have to deal with. And so that causes, that residual sin nature, it causes habits and it causes things that get in the way of our being thankful. One of those is comparisons. So comparison is probably the most lethal, lethal, excuse me, thankfulness killer because it's subtle and it's pervasive. So we have a very, this is actually not a picture of my house, by the way. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, some of you are like, how much are we paying him? So we have a very nice house. This is not it. We live in a very nice neighborhood, and I am very thankful for my house. A couple of weeks ago, we went walking not too far from our neighborhood in a neighborhood where there were some houses around a little man-made lake. And it, we went out about 5.30 on a Sunday. It was a beautiful evening. The sky was just starting to pink and, and come up. We had a beautiful harvest moon. It was pretty nice. 
we were just in a light jacket. We were laughing and having a great time, and we are just walking around this lake. Well, pretty soon, I start noticing the houses around the lake. And I start, oh, that guy's got a pool. And then I'm like, oh, that guy has a pool and a hot tub. And I'm like, oh, they have an outdoor fireplace. And it's like, oh, they have a really nice screened-in porch. And can you guys guess where my next thought goes? Yeah, it's like, well, I don't have a pool. <laughs> well, I don't have a hot tub. I don't have an outdoor fireplace. So just in the space of an instant, without intending to, I had gone from having a great time with my family, looking at the beauty of God's creation, to comparing my house to these houses and cataloging all the ways that my house is deficient. So all the ways that we're, you know, we're going to change the landscape, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. All right? And it's, it's, guys, it is so subtle. It is everywhere around us. We live in a digital age. We swim in the sea of Pinterest and Instagram and Facebook and whatever other anti-social media you're on. And you can't help, you can't help but compare. And we have to guard against that because it can easily tempt us to ingratitude. Another thankfulness killer is busyness. I think sometimes we moderns think the busier we are, the more fulfilled our lives are. And that's not true. Now, I understand that there are seasons in life where things are really busy. So maybe you're a college student or... <coughs> Excuse me, maybe you're trying to get a business off the ground, or maybe you're raising toddlers or teenagers. Uh, and those are all seasons that can leave you with very little time. That's not the busyness I'm talking about. I'm talking about the busyness where we are so scheduled, where we go from activity to activity to activity to activity to activity, and we just have no time at all. And a lot of times, those are good activities. It's not that you guys are out bar hopping or, or pub crawling or anything like that. Those are good activities. But the end result of all that scheduled time is it just leaves you with no margin in your schedule. It leaves you with no time to rest, no time to reflect. We just go 100 miles an hour. And that's an unsustainable pace, guys. If you haven't figured that out by now, you can do that for a little bit, but you can't do it forever. And it naturally leads to grumbling, fatigue, ingratitude. So what's the antidote? How do we combat those tendencies? How do we, how do we develop habits of thankfulness? I want to briefly suggest three ways. All right, one is to surrender. Surrender your rights to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that we were bought with a price, which is the blood of Christ. We were bought with a price so that we are not our own. So the first thing is we need to surrender any right that we think we have to govern our own affairs. 
We don't have any such right. God has purchased us. We are property. Paul uses the language that he is a bond slave to Christ in some of his epistles. So this is hard for us as, as proud American Midwesterners to get our heads around. God owes us nothing. He doesn't owe us salvation. He doesn't owe us the next breath. He doesn't owe us family. God owes us nothing. We belong to him. And he is free to do as he pleases with us, whatever time he wants, whenever he wants. We can't truly be thankful. We can't truly be grateful as long as we are holding on to the idea that I get to direct the course of my own life or that I'm owed something. Because what, in it, what eventually happens is if it's up all up to me, then I have to make it happen. I have to do this. For my own happiness, I have to do this. Or if I think I'm owed something by God, what happens the minute God doesn't come through and God doesn't do what you asked him to do? Well, you're disappointed. You've been offended because some right of yours has been taken away. We will never truly be thankful till we do this, till we lay this down. And this is hard to do. And I'm not up here saying that I have done this well or completely. But this is the first step. If you don't get past this, you're never, ever going to develop a heart of thankfulness. We have to lay down our life. Jesus said that whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And he wasn't talking about physical death. He was talking about this. Lay down your life for Christ. Acknowledge that God is free to do as he pleases, when he wants, with whatever he wants. Okay, now I'm not talking out both sides of my mouth when I say this. The, the next thing is we need to schedule a time when you can practice and develop these habits of thankfulness. So I just said we shouldn't be scheduled, right? And I meant that. But if you're going to develop times of thankfulness, you need to set aside a time when you can do it, when you can practice thankfulness, when you can meditate on the scriptures, when you can put some of these things into practice in your life. And so one of the ways you do that is you put that on the calendar. If it doesn't go on the calendar, we don't do it, we forget about it, and it never happens. Can I suggest that you don't do this during this upcoming holiday season? Right, because most of us are so busy with parties or presents or whatever it is we're busy with that you won't set aside the time to do this. But find a time, mark it on your calendar. And then tell somebody that you're going to do this. If you're in a small group, make this a commitment in your small group. We're going to set aside some time to do this as a small group. If you're not in a small group, this would be an excellent opportunity for you to join one. Put it on the calendar and making it, make it a priority. And then you've got to practice. So elite athletes like Michael Phelps, they practice things over and over and over and over and over and over so that when the time comes to perform, they do them without thinking. They develop what's called muscle memory. It's not that your muscles have memory, but it's you have trained your mind to do something the same way every time so that when you're faced with a situation, you just naturally go into it. We need to practice 
thankfulness. Now, there's some things on your handout. There's space for you to write in your own. I've just listed a couple for you. So one, one is to spend a couple of minutes every day in prayer, solely focused on thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for good and things that you think are not so good. And at first, this might seem a little fake. When you're thanking God for something, especially if it's something you deem negative. But if you practice this over and over, in time, you'll get to the point where you're able to thank God in all circumstance. And it will be a natural thing in your life. Practice thanking people for the things they do for you. And not only that, but just for people being in your life. It, it doesn't take much. We're not talking about buying fancy note cards. We're not talking about doing... You know, go to Walmart and for 89 cents get a pack of those colored index cards. And, and write notes to somebody. Stick it on their car window out there. Or just slip it in their purse. Or just hand it to them. Or put it in their lunch. Or whatever it is. Just, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for you being in my life. Or... This is something you can be thankful for today. It doesn't take much. And then keep a record of thankfulness. So my mother-in-law, she keeps, I don't know if she still does this, but she used to keep a jar in her house, and it was her blessing jar. And every day, she would write down what she was thankful for or some blessing that God had given her. And she would thank God for good things and for bad things, and she'd put them in that jar. She did this for an entire year. Okay, she's got a PhD in thankfulness, but so that would be something for us to aspire to. But she put them in this jar, kept it for an entire year, and at the end of the year, she would she would pull those out, and she would just read. She kept a record of God's thankfulness to her. You guys don't have to get a jar. If some of you journal, put that in your journal, or if you get a box, put it in a box. It doesn't matter what the format is. It's just consistently keeping a record of thankfulness to God. And you'd be surprised when you start doing that how many things you think you can be thankful for. If you're homeschooling, that would be a good homeschool project. If you've got teenagers, that would be a good homework project for them to do. Is keep a record of God's thankfulness. Do what the psalmist tells us to do. Remember don't forget God's thank faithfulness to us. Okay, we're going to do something that is a little out of the ordinary. Um, because I think sometimes you sit here and you hear a sermon and then we start singing and it goes out the ear and you forget about it. So we're going to play some music. And we're going to take three minutes. And I just want you to sit quietly and you can either offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God or you can think about things that you're thankful for or if there's somebody next to you that you're thankful for, you can quietly lean over and say, hey, I'm thankful for you. Or, or you can mark, get your calendar out and, and put the date that you're going to start being thankful on that. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter what you do, but let's just sit here quietly. And I want you to be mindful, mindful of God, mindful of thankfulness. Would you recite it with me? Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing.
Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. His gates with thanksgiving, and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. Steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. 